17. We are coming towards the end of this crazy book that we have been able to study over the last months here this summer, and we'll be in 17 to 18. Um, but I wanted to make this note as well. Um, we have these uh, nice little flyers right here, and on the back of this flyer, which you can get in that black cart right there, um, is some information about our church and some information about some of the summer growth groups going on this summer. And I don't know if you've been able to be a part of our, our summer growth group that we're doing every other week. We are talking about spiritual disciplines. And um, this coming Thursday, we'll be discussing evangelism and stewardship. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of that. It'll be 6.30 here at the church. Uh, we kind of spread out, and so it's a safe place to be. And please be encouraged to be a part of that on Thursday night. And there's information on the back of this sheet. Um, or you can get the information on the website or the app or whatever uh, whatever you use to figure out what's going on here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. So, Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18. We'll be going through these two chapters kind of slowly. I won't, I won't read it all here in the front because it's 42 verses and so that would take a little bit of time. Um, but uh, before, as an introduction, the, the title of this sermon is uh, The Mud Pies of Babylon, The Mud Pies of Babylon. And um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're much of a reader, but I love sports books. Um, I devour books about sports. Uh, it could be uh, something historic. It could be about the culture of sports. It could be a biography of someone. Uh, that play the sport. I just, I just devour these books and read them in a few days. And this was a book that I read, I think, like two years ago. It's called Friday Night Lights. Uh, maybe you've seen the TV show that was. I think it was. It, it, it showed on NBC from 2006 to 2011, I believe. Or you saw the movie that came out. I think a few years before then. Um, but this is probably one of the best sports books you could read. It's in, and it was funny, I was talking to, I think, Ditton or someone about this book. And uh, after reading this book, it made me not like football as much. Not because, um, because of the sport itself, but how crazy people are about football in the South. Uh, I went to the University of Tennessee, which is, to be honest, a football school. Uh, if you if 100,000 plus people go to a football game, you can pretty much state that that state or that school is crazy about football. Uh, and this book is a story, uh, a true story, about uh, Odessa, Texas, and about a high school football team in that small West Texas town, and how crazy they are about high school football. And um, um, when, when you watch, when you read the book, or you watch the television show, and the television show kind of fictionalizes this, but they introduce you to these, these players on the team. And these players are treated like gods, basically. By the town, by the other students in the high school, they are like Greek gods. They can do no wrong. And uh, this may be surprising to some of you, but when I was a kid, I'm talking about like uh, third, fourth, fifth grade, so elementary age, I played peewee football. Um, and I love playing football. One of my favorite things to do, we had a football game on Saturday. And I, I mean, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. And high school football is really big in Memphis, Tennessee. And we lived in a town called Bartlett, Tennessee. And every Friday night, my parents would take me to the Bartlett High School football 
Jersey to the game. And I would play with my friends, and we would watch the game, we'd throw the football around, and we dreamed that we would be on that field when we were 18, 19, I mean, sorry, 15, 16, 17, and 18. We dreamed that we would be playing high school football. And I had this dream that I would play quarterback for the University of Tennessee. That was my dream. When I was in Pee Wee and I was in fourth grade, that was my dream. I wanted to play quarterback for Tennessee. And I would dream about that, right? If kids, uh, I'd go outside and, and get my football, I'd be out in the yard and we would play. And I would dream that I would throw touchdown passes in college. So when I read Friday Night Lights, like that was, like I get this. I get this story. And these, these players, they dreamed of playing pro football. I mean, if you're treated with such glory and fame, you believe that you could play pro football, that you could live your entire life kind of, kind of bathing in this football glory. And most of the players had this dream. And it's interesting that former players who were still celebrated, they had like a hall of fame for them. And during prep rallies, they would celebrate them. They would come back. And some of these ex-players who also had these same dreams, but those dreams died, devastating death, they saw that football was a means of salvation, right? To get out of this podunk West Texas town, football was the means of salvation to get out of their lot. Like poor players, like kids that lived in more of the, 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 the poor areas of town saw football as the means of their salvation. The players, the coaches, the, the town, the allure, the intoxicating passion for football was just too powerful to flee. You had to love the football team. You had to love everything about football in West Texas. One of the chapters in the book is, is called, It's the Friday Night Addiction. They were addicted to football. They were intoxicated by football. There was one player with an interesting story. His name was Ivory Christian. He was on this 1988 Pyramid uh, Panthers football team. And he was a Christian. And he had this dream to be a preacher. He wanted to preach. He wanted to be a pastor of some big church. Well, he was also a high school football player. And he started to get scholarship letters from universities like Texas Christian University. And he started to change his dream. And his dream now began to be a major college football player. His dream was to be a pro football player and to make money and to, be, and to basically bathe in the glory of football. And that dream of being a preacher and a dream about being a pastor died quickly when he got that letter in the mail about getting a, being a full scholarship football player. And he, no, there, was for, there were few of anyone who was immune to this allure, this allure, this intoxicating passion for fame and glory through football. In David Kinman's book, You Lost Me, he reported that 59% of young adults with a Christian background had dropped out of church involvement. This was in 2011. In 2019, that number had jumped to 64% of all young adults who were once regular churchgoers have dropped out. So every child in this room, and these statistics are true, 64% of them will not be in the church when they get older. The main reason given for the dropout 
is the concept called, that they coined this phrase, but digital Babylon. Digital Babylon is, a, is, our, is an accelerated complex culture that is marked by a phenomenal access and profound alienation and a crisis of authority. This pagan but spiritual, hyper-stimulated, multicultural, imperial crossroads that is the virtual home of every person with Wi-Fi, a data plan, is spinning people away from God and away from Christ. The purpose of this digital Babylon is, is set against the purposes of God. And to be honest, if you're a young adult or you have children, they will also be pulled into this spinning purpose that is spinning people away from God. Babylon is a word, it's a place, it's a culture that is not first introduced here in Revelation 17. It's introduced actually in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, Babylon. Babylon of the Bible is characterized as a culture set against the purposes of God, a human society that glories in pride, power, prestige, and pleasure. Babylon is both a place and an archetype of collective human pursuits set in the opposition to God. If Babylon was around today, they would use the internet as an imperial weapon to colonize their prey and push people away from God. And that is in every one of our homes, in every one of our pockets. It's not surprising that kids and young adults are gone away from the church because they have access to a world that is alluring and intoxicating. 26% of teenagers think they will definitely or probably be famous by the time they turn 25. 26%. They believe they will make it big on YouTube. Teenagers and young adults want to be successful by having a great paying job and making a difference in the world. They are fixated on this dream and the goals of Christian parents for their children are no different than the goals of non-Christian parents for their children. No different. Their goals, the goals of kids and parents is economic success in the world, and Christian parents have the same goals. They're all intoxicated and allured by this Babylon. They do not have the goal to raise resilient disciples of Christ. They have goals to raise consumers and get-aheaders of a digital Babylon. And if Christian parents do not invest in them as resilient disciples of Christ, their hearts will be lost. They'll be lost. How do we live faithful to Christ in a world system whose purpose is to allure you away from Christ? Babylon, as we'll be talking about through 17 and 18, is a system that wants to allure you away from Christ and allure your children away from Christ. If, how do we raise children to be resilient, faithful, resiliently faithful to Christ? The goal of our parenting, the goal of your life, is to be resilient. To be resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. So the kind of the main point that uh, I want to just draw you draw you into here is that the world system is attractive to all, but her splendor and allure will swiftly end in destruction. Therefore, 
flee her seduction. The world system is attractive to all, but her splendor and allure will swiftly end in destruction. Therefore, flee her seduction. The allure of Babylon is difficult to resist, but her doom is the fate of all who succumb to her allure. That's like the, the, the first point of all this. The allure of Babylon is difficult to resist, but her doom is the fate of all who succumb to her allure. So the first sub-point is, is the great prostitute. The great prostitute. We get introduced to this great prostitute at the beginning of chapter 17. The, the angel, the seventh angel with the seven bowls, with the seventh bowl, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. This great prostitute, this image that John sees, is sitting on many waters, and we're told later on in chapter 17 that these waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. This great prostitute sits uh, with authority over the, the people of the earth. She sits with power. Similarly, we see a lot through Revelation that God sits on the throne, the one who sits on the throne in heaven. Now this great prostitute is shown to John, and she sits on a throne that is above the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the language. She seduces the world. All the kings of the earth are seduced by her. They, they basically, we think of sexual morality as if they had sex with them, but really what we're seeing is, is that they worship her. They worship this great prostitute. They treat her as a god. The kings of the earth, the kings, Adam in the garden was a king of creation, right? He, God gave him power and gave him the, the commission to, to cultivate and expand and to rule over the, the, the bird of the, of the airs and the, and the fish of the sea and God's creation. He was a king. Kings are supposed to represent God to the people, and these kings of the earth have now worshipped and have become intoxicated by this great prostitute. It says that the people of the earth are drunk on her. They're drunk. They get their fill from her. They're intoxicated by her. Their deep passion is for her. Their loyalty is towards her. They believe that she will provide what they lack, desire, a better life, security, and acceptance. That's why they're intoxicated by her. That's why they are drunk on her, because they believe that she will fulfill their desires. What is a prostitute? A prostitute is an imitation of intimacy. You're paying to have a life for a moment without the joys of a relationship, commitment, and knowledge. They only care what the woman, the prostitute can give them. They have no relationship. They have no commitment, unlike God's commitment and relationship with his people. The, the great prostitute is unified with this beast. It says in verse 3, And she carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness 
And I saw a woman sitting on scarlet beads that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. She is united with this beast. We're introduced to this beast in chapter 13, 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns, and blasphemous names on his head. This is the beast that she is riding. This is the beast that she's sitting upon. She is united with this beast who speaks blasphemous things to the Lord. They're united together. What's so interesting about this great prostitute is the beauty of her appearance. John says when he sees her, when he has this vision of her in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, pearls and holding in her hand as a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She looked beautiful. Even some of the language almost is similarly to what, the way the vision that you see of Jesus, like this beautiful clothing and, and she's covered with gold and she's wearing precious and rare jewels, pearls. She looks alluring. She looks seductive. She looks beautiful. But what is she holding? She's holding a cup full of abominations and sins and impurities. And these kings and these people of the earth are willing to drink what she offers. They're willing to get drunk on what she offers. They're willing to be intoxicated by what she offers. And what is she offering? As I said way back when we first started this sermon that some of the issues with some of the seven churches was what they had some of the people in the church to be able to profit as merchants and tradesmen in the cities would be part of these guilds. And to be able to be a profitable merchant or tradesman, you had to be part of these city guilds. And these guilds had a part of their, their, their meetings and, and, and associations with idolatry and worshiping of false teachings. So going along with this desire to be economically secure and to be profitable and to be respectful in the cities and in the provinces in which they worked, they had to align themselves with abominations. They had to align themselves with idolatry. We think about our own world. What are, what are we told when we're young? It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's all about networks. How do you make networks with people? Well, you show a sense of respect and honor to them. You try to create some type of association and connection with them. But usually what hurts a sense of networking within the business and economic world is this. You don't want to be too religious. It's okay to have a little Jesus. It's okay to have a little religion, but don't have too much Jesus. That will affect your networking. That will affect how people see you. So there's strong pressure to drink of her cup. There's strong pressure to become intoxicated, to be drunk on the things of the world. And we're introduced to her identity in verse 5. And her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and earth's abominations. She had a mysterious name. Her name was hidden. She looks beautiful. She looks alluring, she looks safe, but in actuality, she's quite dangerous. 
Her true nature is actually hidden from the eyes of the world, from the people of the world. She's actually the great Babylon. Babylon in Isaiah 13, 19 is the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans. In Jeremiah 51, 20-23, she's a powerful nation. Great army, a great military, a great kingdom, a very vast kingdom, a very rich kingdom. But in actuality, she's the mother of whores and the abomination of the earth of the earth. She produces things that God hates. She objectifies people. She sells brokenness, not hope. As the serpent sold Eve and Adam the fruit. That was what? The consequences was brokenness and being exiled from the presence of God. The woman only offers brokenness. That's what she sells. She looks beautiful. She looks alluring. She looks safe. She's adorned with gold. But in actuality, she only offers brokenness and loss. And what is her passion? get the idea of who she is, we understand what she looks like, and what is her passion. In verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. While the kings and the people of the earth get drunk on her, she gets drunk on the blood of the church. That's her passion. And so you have to be careful who you're getting seducted into because the world system truly hates God, hates Christ, and hates the church. Verse, verse 6. Second part of verse 6. And John saw her and marveled greatly. So the second sub-point is her allure is monstrous. Her allure is monstrous. The word there for marvel to be admired. John greatly admired. You see the, the, the subtlety here? John sees this vision, and he is marveled by the great prophecy. He admires. He's afraid of, but also taken back. He's astonished by her. It says a little bit later here that the people, um, verse Eight, that the people also, the ones who, um, who, uh, who are not, who those on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast. The beast that she is united with, the beast that she's connected with, people will marvel to see him. We can go back to chapter 13 of Revelation. We get this similar passage in verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The world wants to marvel the beast. And what is the beast? He is from Satan. He is from the evil one. He's from hell himself. Hell itself. He hates God. He mocks Christ. His desire is to destroy the church. The beast teaches people to celebrate freedom from God. The beast teaches people to be like God and have personal autonomy. The beast is doing what the beast tells you to do what makes you happy. Do what delights your eyes. And 
people marvel and admire this beast who is one of, of one mind with the great prostitute. So if you associate yourself with the world, if you if you become intoxicated by its by its pleasures and its allures, you're actually united and associating with Satan himself. And those who will marvel at this beast is, are those who are not secure in Catch that passage, catch that phrasing there. If you're in Christ, you will not marvel. That's why this is the importance of prayer is so important in the Christian life. It's so important when we know people who do not know Jesus Christ. Because again, salvation does not become is not, not produced by works, it's produced by only through God Himself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if people are not saved by the grace of Christ, who drank the cup of God's wrath for us because of our sin, they will fall in love with Babylon. They will fall in love with the great prostitute. They will uh, be seducted by her. So if you have children, and you don't want it to be your child to be seducted by the world, you better be praying for them. You better be praying for them. When they come out of the womb, you better start praying for them. here in verse 7, as, as the angel is about to show John the meaning of all this in verse 9, he says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Wisdom. You need wisdom from God not to be allured or seduced by the great apostles, by the world. James 1, 5, and if you lack wisdom, let him ask God, he who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We all are going to be allured and seduced by the world. Because why? Because you're fallen, you're sinful, you will be seduced by her. And the only way not to fall into her trap is wisdom. And you're not going to get wisdom unless you ask for it for God. You will seriously get it. Because again, John himself is seduced by her and her Lord and marvels at also will marvel at the world. We will also fall into her seduction and her alert if we are not in prayer and if we are not receiving the wisdom from God. The wisdom to know the seductions of Babylon only comes from God. The third sub-point is the demonic power behind the curtain. This beast is what we're introduced to here in this last part of chapter 17. And we're told an interesting phrase that's repeated a few times in this chapter. He said, John says in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. What's so interesting about that formula or that pattern of wording, it's similarly what we've, heard, we've read about God, who is, who was, and is to come. Now the beast here is mocked by the angel. The angel's like, oh yeah, he was, but he is not. And he is coming if leading to destruction. It's a mockery of the beast. And so the people of the world, the kings of the world, are seduced by this prostitute who is riding the beast, and the beast is being mocked by the angel. You're worshiping something that is so below God. So below God. 
who was and is not. And every time his going and his coming is only to destruction, not to life, not to authority, not to, not to rule, not to power, but destruction. And that beast has one mind with a great prostitute, and it will make war on the lamb. Its pleasure is the blood of the church. And what are we told here? What are we told about the lamb? They will make war on the lamb in verse 14. The lamb will conquer them. Conquer the great prostitute, will conquer uh, the beast, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and are faithful. The Lord will conquer. Because he's the Lord of Lords and he's the King of Kings. And those who will conquer with him are his faithful and chosen. And that's why when Jesus answers the questions of the disciples, how do we pray, Jesus? And what does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Why do we want his kingdom to come? Because his kingdom will conquer the world and Satan and the beast. And that's a good thing. And that is something that we should always pray, is that Christ's kingdom will come to the world. Why? Because his church will also conquer with him those who are faithful and chosen. The last part of 17, we get introduced to this civil war. And basically the beast will devour and destroy the prostitutes. That God is sovereign over this. That God has placed this in the heart of the beast to do so. That God is making a mockery of Satan and his agenda. But then it ends here in 17. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The continuous allure of the great prostitute. Her dominion is over the kings of the earth. Do you see the subtle nature of her allure? Her seduction. How does, it, how does it work? If you read the Bible, you can see how this works, like with Israel. They become weary of God's provision, right? Think of the, think of the people of Israel in the, in the wilderness. They become weary of God's provision. They got tired of the manna. They thought they should just go back to Egypt. Their faith is low and their passions are high. They seek satisfaction outside the means of Christ Jesus. They look to God less. They look to themselves more or to something else. They start believing that the church has no return on investment, right? What am I getting from any of this? What am I receiving? What is this worth? What value does it bring me? The return of investment is very low, so I should just go out. I should work more, study more, skip church, spend more time with family. Those things have return on investment. I don't trust God's provision. Replace God's word and his church with more work, more pleasure, more entertainment. I lived in the South most of my life. If you know what people in the South worship, they don't worship Jesus. That's a falsity. They don't worship Jesus. They may go to church. They don't worship Christ. You know what they worship? Sports, academics, and beauty. Those three things. If you're a girl, you're beautiful. You can get a husband. You can get rich. If you're, if you're a boy who likes sports, play sports. Get a scholarship. That's the allure of the world. You can't trust God for his provision, so you trust the world for its provision. That's the subtleness of her nature. When we get into chapter 18, fourth sub-point is do not succumb to her allure, Christians. Do not succumb to her allure, Christians. We get In 18, we kind of basically get the actual moment of her destruction. The angel 
uh, came down from heaven, another angel from heaven, having great authority on the earth, was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Where do we learn more about Babylon? She's a dwelling place for demons. We, can't, we understand that, right? She's connected to the beast. She's unified with the beast. But who is the beast? The beast is uh, Satan's uh, uh, creation that is blasphemy is the name of God that he's given a power and authority to. All the nations of the world have grown drunk on her. They've been intoxicated by her. We get kings. We get merchants. Interesting thing. I'm going to go back a little bit in American history here. I was reading, uh, and everyone's watched, maybe watched the Hamilton uh, uh, show on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and, and so I've been reading the book on Hamilton's life. And um, we learn a little bit about some of the other characters, like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and things like this. One of the interesting parts of the, of the life of, and, and the founding of the United States is what to do with slavery. It was a big issue. Most of the South, you know, had had slavery for a long time. Most of the North also. New York was full of slavery as well. That's just to do that. Any of these states with a lot of land and a lot of farms had slaves on them. And one of the issues, the reason why some of the founding fathers and some of the other kind of important people in the 1780s you know, and, and like, the reason why they didn't get rid of slavery is because the money was just too good. The money was just too good to resist. And they gave away the slaves and they had to either pay them or pay some other laborers to work their massive acres of land and their farms, and that's where a lot of these rich men in the colonies got all their money from, is from their farms, and the money was just too good. An interesting thing I also learned by reading is that one of the important things about having slaves is it was a status thing. If you had a slave, or you had slaves, you were considered rich. The status and the money was just too good. And so you drink of the world's you drink of its abomination because its benefits are just too good to resist. And Jesus, I mean, and God says, I believe this is God saying this. Another voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people. He's talking to his church. He's talking to his people. Don't become partners in her sins. Sharing in her destruction. Being guilty of her own abomination and associating with her passion. Her sins is that she glorifies herself. She lives in luxury. She rules in defiance of God. Do not partner yourself with that. Flee from it. Very similar to what Joseph does, right? When he is seducted by Potiphar's wife, what does he do? He flees from her. Similarly, flee from this seduction. Flee from this allure. Because many people on the earth, merchants and kings, shipbuilders. Many have filled themselves with her pleasure. They live in luxury with her and because of her. They long for her delicacies and her splendor. They have 
done what Paul talks about in Romans 1, 28 through, tw- I mean, 24 through 25, they have now worshipped God's creation over the years. The fallenness of God's creation and that man no longer worships the God who creates it, but he worships the creation itself. They worship these kings, these people of the earth, who worship and adore the great prostitute, have now worshipped the creation over the creator. They love stuff. They love money. They love the splendor. They love the glory. They love the beauty of the stuff. And that's why they worship her. That's why they're drunk on her. What's so interesting is that maybe in Matthew 11, 28 to 31, right? You know, Jesus says, come to me, all those who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Great passage. What do you see in that passage? It says, if you come to Jesus, who is humble and gentle, right, lowly and gentle, what do you get? You get peace, you get acceptance, you get contentment, you get wisdom within Christ. What do you get from the woman? What do you get from the world? What do you get from the great prostitute? Loss, brokenness, and judgment. That's what you get. And the world, the people of the earth, the merchants, Kings, the shipbuilders, they get themselves drunk. And it leads to loss and judgment. The last sub-point, or the second to last point, is her judge, her destruction will be swift and devastating. Swift and devastating. Her sins have been heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, and he is going to pay her back. And it says in verse 8, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. It says later on here in verse uh, 10, They will stand far off in fear of her torment, and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. In verse 17. They had so much glory, so much splendor, so much luxury, so much power, and God in a single hour lays it to waste. All the merchants and all the kings and all the shipbuilders watched from afar, weeping and mourning, because their luxury and the place and the source of their luxury is now gone away in a single hour. of those who succumb to her will be equally devastating. They are far off, right? It says that they stood far off. They're like, well, why are they standing far off? Because they're in fear of the destruction. In fear of their own torment and judgment because of their association with her. And they weep and mourn. They weep and mourn the destruction of Babylon, but they also weep and mourn for themselves because they knew that judgment was going upon them. Interesting that we see here in verse 18, Later on here in the chapter, in verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and your saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for, for you against her. What the city of Babylon is saying, is, or what, what the shipmasters are saying, is that rejoice, people of heaven, because God has brought judgment for you. And we saw this early on in Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11, the prayers of the saints, because they're martyred by the world. The 
even in Revelation 8, 1 through 5, we see that the bowls of the prayers of the saints in the hands of the angel right before the seven trumpets of God's judgment. And why would the why would Christians, why would the church, why would God's people be celebrating the destruction of Babylon? Well, we get the answer in verse 24. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and all who have been slain on earth. Who else has been slain on earth? Who else has been slain by the world? Who else has been slain by the abomination of the city? Jesus Christ himself and the church itself and the martyrs have been killed by her. So they rejoice over her. For God has given judgment for you against her. God's will is done. His kingdom has come. His will has been done. We pray that God's will will be done. And his will is to revenge the blood of his saints and the blood of his church. And he will do that. The last point here is watch over your heart. Watch over your heart. What, what does it all mean? When I started studying for this passage and, and thinking about it, and we were talking in our uh, sermon application team, it's like, what is the big application from this? Sure, we've talked already about, like, don't be alert by the world. Don't be seduced by the world. And we, you hear that in many, many, many sermons. One of the applications that was really heavy on my part as I was reading and studying and praying over this passage is the allure and seduction of parents and their goals for their children. And all of us as well, college students as well. Because I hear a lot of college students since I've been, since we've had this church, since we started Redeemer Fellowship, you have a college student who wouldn't come to church on Sunday, you're like, hey, where were you? Like, oh, I was studying. I had a big test on Monday. So they had convinced themselves that was better for their grade and for their success was studying and skipping church and not relying on God. Where do you think that comes from? That's seduction in the world of the world. Getting the right job, being so stressed out about getting the right job that you're like, ah, I believe in God, but I don't think God's going to help me get a good job. But I know getting A's in all my tests, that will help me get a good job. And I really want a good job. And so I'm going to prioritize that over involvement in the church and worshiping with other Christians. That's the allure of the world. Having financial security and saying, if I have all these things, what will you say? I will be made well. Because I have all this stuff. Where do you think that philosophy comes from? It comes from your lore of the great prophets. And if you don't, if you're not in college and you're just a, you're married or single and you're just working, you can also be seducted by this world. Promotions, getting ahead, networking with the right people. Your priorities can be so subtly become a be about that over God and that trusting in his provisions in your life. And parents, we are, we are the worst at this because we think our kids don't need Jesus. They just need to get in the right classes and the right schools and the right group of people and the right clubs and the right this and the right that and they'll get to go to the right college and to go to the right college and get to go to the right job or the right internship. That is the seduction of the world. It always has been, and it always will be. 
Because what you're thinking is, is that what's really important for my children is not that they love Jesus. I mean, they can go to church, go to BBS, that's okay. But that's not how, what's going to get them ahead in the world. They need to get the right job and the right internship and marry the right people and marry the right person and all those different things. That will make them successful. And to be honest with you, that's what matters to me. That's the special What does C.S. Lewis say? He said, it would seem that our, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. There are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That is the issue. We think the great prostitute in the world, and it's mud pies and in the slum, is far better than the vacations at the sea that Christ offers. And that's crazy. But that's the seduction and the allure of her. She makes us crazy. Hence the point of drunkenness and intoxication. Do not settle for mud pies. Pray for God's presence in your family and in your hearts. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we should be praying for our hearts, for our family, for our children, for our church. That God, our Father, who is in heaven, who has all the power, would be honored. And that the kingdom would come through our families, through our children, through our church. And that his will would be done in our hearts, in our families, and in our church. I said this to the men on Thursday night. There's five prayers that God will always answer yes to. Five. He will always say yes to forgiveness of sin. He will always say yes to wisdom. He will always say yes, that you will know God more, that you would be strengthened in faithfulness, and that the gospel would go forth through you. Those are five prayers that you can pray to God right now, and he would say yes to. He would say yes to about your children as well. Why don't we pray? Because we want our children to be successful. What did Hannah pray about his, her children? When she received Samuel, she said, and I will bring him into the appearance of the presence of the Lord, and he will dwell there forever. Her goal for her son Samuel was to be in the presence of the Lord forever. That was her goal for her son. Pray for God's presence in your life, in the life of your children and future children. Teach them that God Almighty has a purpose for their life. That he has a desire for them to call him Father. To be redeemed by his son Jesus Christ. That God Almighty has gifted them with passions and strength to glorify him. Not themselves or not their parents. To glorify him. That God who created the beautiful creation out of nothing. Brought order from chaos and cultivated a garden with abundant fruit for Adam and Eve to enjoy. Has a purpose to use their work to cultivate abundance. To generate order or create beauty as a purpose to use their work to, to use their uh, their work to cultivate abundance and generate order and create beauty to bring his kingdom into the world, to bring his kingdom into the world. You start teaching your children that their education and their work is not about themselves, but it's about glorifying him and ushering in his kingdom. Their education and their work has meaning because God created them to work in his creation and glorify him to bring honor to his name. Teach your children that. It's not about making money. It's not about getting a great job. It's not about getting fame. It is about glorifying God Almighty. Teach them that. 
Stop prioritizing the valedictorian rewards, the full scholarships, the all-star teams, the high-profile internships, and the promotions. Stop prioritizing those things because those things are connected to the world's system. They're not bad, but they are connected to the world's system, and our priority should be Christ and not succumbing to the allure of the world. These are the allures of the Babylon. They will capture the heart of you and your children. Do not be seduced by her. Do not lead your children or grandchildren to the slaughter. You realize that? If you prioritize these things and you devalue Christ, you are leading them to the slaughter? Do you really want to do that? Do you really want to lead our children to the slaughter? Teach them to taste and see that the Lord is good. Not the world. Not the riches of the world. But he is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Teach them not to take refuge in the luxurious splendor of the great prostitute whose fate is doomed. That's your fate. Teach them to love the vacations at the sea and to reject the mud pies of the swamp. Let's pray. Lord, it's so alluring and seductive, Lord, to fall into this trap of wanting the luxuries of the world, to wanting the networking of the world and the glories of the world and the honor and respect that comes from the world, wanting our children to also have that, our grandchildren. It's so alluring. It's so seductive. And it's so dangerous. Lord, call your children out of that thinking. Call them out, Lord. May they flee that. May they run fast from it. May parents in here teach their children the ways of the Lord. May they be arrows that are shot out into the world to glorify you, not themselves, not their parents, but to glorify you. May that be the, the, the dreams. May that be their passion. May that be their love is to glorify you and receive not only salvation, but you receive the peace and the love and the contentment and the satisfaction and the peace that only comes through Christ. Lord, if anyone in here had fallen into this sin and fallen into this trap of being allured by the world, Lord, I pray that you lead them to confession, lead them to repentance, and make them whole. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take up the Lord's uh, Supper right now in the way that we